everybody. Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today's episode was actually inspired by another episode I was going to do on musician Joe Walsh. He was of the Eagles. He had a very popular solo career. And as I was researching for him, I came across a side story that I actually haven't heard about before. And I have not seen a lot of people talking about this story. So Joe Walsh, he had a half-brother, Mark, and Mark married this woman, Susan. And Susan ended up disappearing in 1996. And there are a whole lot of conspiracy theories about whether or not she had a hit put out on her by the Russian mob, whether vampires in New York City killed her, whether she was murdered somehow, or whether she disappeared of her own volition. She has not been seen since 1996, And her case remains open and unsolved to this very day. And I figured I need to share her story because she is a missing person. But also, I just thought that was really interesting. Like, Joe Walsh's history has this really weird story attached to his namesake. And I just thought, I need to share the story of Susan Walsh. Because let me tell you, it will blow your mind what you hear. Because you might start thinking that vampires in New York City is actually real because I'm questioning everything. So who is Susan Walsh? Well, she was born Susan Young on February 18th, 1960. Her birthday is coming up actually very soon. From her early childhood, Susan's dream was to be a poet and a writer, but a broken home and unhappy childhood made reaching her goal of constant struggle. She attended William Patterson University where she studied English and writing. While there, she was employed as a journalist for the university newspaper. So that was her passion. Her passion was to reach people with her words. She loved literature. She loved reading. She loved writing. And being a top journalist at a very prestigious newspaper, magazine, was something that she aspired to be. Unfortunately, I think as we all know, university is extremely expensive. College is an arm and a leg to attend. And, you know, she came from a family that wasn't extremely well off, and so... In order for her to pay her college tuition, she worked intermittently as an exotic dancer and stripper at a local club near her to help pay for her college tuition. Unfortunately, though, this led her to be in some extremely seedy situations, as one could imagine, and she began drinking heavily and abusing drugs while she was in college in the 80s. And I think that you can doubly imagine not only being an exotic dancer while you're a college student, but also being involved in alcoholism and being an active drug addict, that set her up for immediate failure in her life personally. Her career as a journalist fluctuated throughout her career there, but she graduated from college in 1984 and she worked as a writer in engineering. She worked as a writer for engineering and business publications, and when she graduated, she attempted to become sober for the first time. So she would unfortunately have many attempts at becoming sober, but this was her first attempt. And by all accounts, when she graduated college, she really attempted to make a really solid name for herself. She wanted to be taken seriously in her field, and she did not want to be involved in the drugs and the alcohol anymore. But I think as a lot of us probably know, whether you 
have family or friends that are addicts or you yourself once were, you know somebody, you know that relapse is very common. But at this point in time, she is great. She's doing great. She is working really well, working for business publications. So she's doing good. In 1984, she married Mark Walsh, again, who's the half-brother of Joe Walsh. And so now she's a part of this, you know, really kind of prestigious rock and roll family because Joe Walsh had a very prestigious long career in the music industry. At this point in time in the 80s, his career solo-wise wasn't necessarily the greatest. He had his prime in the Eagles and then as a solo artist earlier on, like with songs like Rocky Mountain Way, Life's Been Good, In the City, etc, etc. But at this point in the 80s, 90s, Joe Walsh kind of was teetering out and he wasn't as popular in the charts. But You know, he was also uh, married to James Bond girl, Barbara Bash's sister. And Barbara Bash, she is married to Ringo Starr. So there's another kind of interesting connection. I wanted to throw more Joe Walsh facts in here uh, to keep you guys satiated. But so she married Mark Walsh, half-brother of Joe Walsh. And the couple had one son, David, who was born in 1985. So as she was becoming more serious in her journalism, the two of them her and Mark began to separate. And in order to support their son, David, she went back to stripping. Her career as a journalist wasn't making her enough money. And as a single parent now trying to raise her son, she couldn't get enough money to support herself and her son. Ironically enough, though, her and Mark lived in the same apartment building. I believe he lived in the floor below her. So he was still very close in proximity to her and David, but they were obviously co-parenting. So she went back to stripping to gain some more money, you know, make some more income for herself while she was supporting her son. Ironically, this provided the critical boost to her journalism career because she came across really seedy, interesting people in these clubs while she was stripping and she became part of the sex industry. And at this time... You know, her career as a journalist was starting to falter. It wasn't on really solid ground. It was pretty rocky because, again, as she was becoming involved with stripping, she hand in hand went along with relapsing into drugs and alcohol. Um, And also her mental state really wasn't that strong at this point in time either because she started saying to people that she was coming across really seedy characters that she was... Uh, in fear of her life, and she thought she was being stalked. So at this point in time, she worked at this New York newspaper called The Village Voice. I'm not sure if it's still in print or not. I believe it's still actually running, but I'm not certain about that. Um, So she worked for The Village Voice, and she began researching the sex industry through her connections that she made at the club. And, you know, clubs of this caliber are very seedy and a lot of mobsters go to these kinds of places to run the joint and to get girls to be I know I don't know if I would say sex trafficked but to work for them if you will so she was starting to become aware of these kinds of characters through the club that she worked at and she uncovered a story involving Russian organized crime figures, allegedly forcing young Russian women to dance in clubs in the early 90s in New York City. So she was earning critical praise for her work, 
while she was writing the story, but as she was getting deeper into the research of this story, she became very paranoid that, you know, the mob could be after her because she was uncovering some things about the mob that she thought they would put a hit out on her. I believe at one point in time, she told a friend she thought she had two contracts out on her life because she thought she was getting too close to the fire. You know what I mean? Like she was getting a bit too close. And I think she was nervous that, you know, mobsters were catching on to what she was doing and that she probably knew a little too much. And, you know, when you know a little too much and you're around the gangsters, as you can probably imagine from all those gangster films, they don't like that. And, you know, but also it translates into real life as well. And so she really thought that she had a hit out on her life. She, you know, had the story and she did really well in that regard. But then she moved on to a different topic. So she had a mentor at the Village Voice. His name is James Ridgway. And he had heard that there was blood going missing from very, very high security New York hospitals. I mean, if you can imagine so many New York hospitals, you know, with really high security, like how is blood going missing, right? Well, he suggested to her that she look into it. How come there's blood going missing at these New York hospitals? What's going on here? You know, is it being sold on the black market? You know, what's going on? You know, so he was kind of putting her in in a bit more of harm's way, if you will, because again, if you get too close to the fire on something like this, you, you don't know what you're going to uncover, right? That's, you know, it's scary to hear blood going missing from New York hospitals. That's almost getting into tinfoil hat conspiracy theory territory. But she took her job very seriously, and she was actually extremely curious about what was happening here. So she spent days on the phone and weeks crisscrossing Victorian streets of the East Village, you know, the really rundown cobblestone streets. Like, she was really going in, and she was trying to interview people. So she uncovered what she thought was a sort of cult, right? Where underground vampires were living in New York City and they were stealing blood, like packets of blood, you know, like blood transfusions when they're in the packets, right? Or vials of blood. They were stealing blood samples and they were almost like a drug den sort of situation, drinking blood. But not only that, she discovered that they would bring upon victims where they would tie their victims down and they would feed from them. It's very Dracula-ish, Bram Stoker's Dracula-ish. It's very odd, but it's interesting because one article that I read while they were actually researching Susan's disappearance, this article, uh, I believe it was in the New York Times, came out in the 90s late 90s, of course, because she disappeared in 1996. And this reporter, she was actually interviewing people that claimed to be vampires and actually knew high stakes officials in these hospitals, doctors and such, like smuggling the blood and giving them out. And this person was like, yeah, in the back of restaurants, clubs, you know, we would go and we'd feed and we'd get people, willing participants to come and we'd feed on them. And it was it was a really, really weird interview. And I'm not going to lie. It kind of scared me <laughs> to think that this could be real. And you know what? I mean, yeah, I would imagine that it probably is real, to be honest. I mean, blood going missing from New York hospitals, right? I think that's really weird. So she uncovered this story. She went so deep into this story that she actually reportedly dated someone who claimed to be an actual vampire in this situation. 
And it was mostly happening in Greenwich Village. Greenwich Village is one of the most probably popular indie rich uh, places in New York City around there, obviously, aside from Manhattan and, you know, Brooklyn and, you know, Williamsburg and stuff. But Greenwich Village, that's a really famous hotspot for a lot of famous celebrities to live and hang out there. Um, But predominantly a lot of vampire clubs apparently was booming in this in this place and it was boasting a wealthy clientele many of whom claimed to be real blood drinkers and so she she was heavily invested she was so deep knee deep in blood literally in this situation so she claimed again to have found actual people that you know appear to be normal people that were vampires drinking other people's bloods in their cramped new york apartments and you know sometimes they stole it from the hospitals and stuff and Sometimes these people did actually have actual fangs, you know? And so she brought this story to James Ridgway, again, her mentor at The Village Voice. And he was put off by it because he thought, this is too Bella Lugosi. This is too Hollywood. This is not real. Like, this is not, like, what is this? This is absurd, right? So he was disappointed. And he said, she got totally absorbed with the vampire thing, the theories, the energy flows. The article she wrote wasn't very astute, and so they didn't accept her story, and they asked her to rewrite the story, make it more realistic, I guess. So she became really upset when the Village Voice didn't run her story. I mean, I can understand how they would think that, you know, oh, it's because of vampires that blood's going missing from New York hospitals, that they'd be like, is this a script for a movie? Like, I can understand how they would be really off-put by it, but also... Seemingly enough, it seems real to me from the research that I've also done, but also she claims that this was real. So she had two opposing forces that were coming in on her. She had the vampires that she was heavily involved in. She dated a guy that was a vampire. And then she had the Russian mob on her ass because she was a stripper on the side while she was working for the Village Boys and she was trying to infiltrate that whole scene there and she was not... She was probably not doing the safest job that she could being undercover, trying to get a story. And that's unfortunate. She probably could have been a little bit safer. You know, I would hope that those of her colleagues, you know, would have told her to be careful. But, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe they didn't, but I would hope so. So it is June 1996, a month before Susan vanished. Her career was on an upswing at this point, not due to the vampire story. She was in the middle of rewriting that when she disappeared. But she had done primary research for this book that was entitled Red Light Inside the Sex Industry by her mentor, James Ridgway. And so she was doing research for it. She was involved in it. So she was helping with this book. And the night of the publisher's party for this book, James noticed that her wrists were bandaged. He learned that along with cutting her wrists, She was taking tranquilizers and had started drinking again. So she was really not doing so well. While her career was at an upswing, her mental state, her paranoia, and her involved in all of these really shady, one's a cult, one's the mob, you know. It was very wearisome on her and it was very tiresome on her. And she was a full-blown addict again. She brushed off the cuts in the bandages, she caught up, she brushed off all of it, saying that she would get help if she thought she needed it. I think very stereotypical addict mindset of, I don't need help, I'm good, if I need help, I'll get help. Well, unfortunately, she didn't get the help because she vanished not long after this. 
Susan was actually a part of a couple of different films that were in the process of being made revolving around the sex industry. So a documentarian called Jill Morley, who was a friend of Susan, Jill produced this film entitled Stripped, and the movie revolved around strippers and featured an interview with Susan. So again, it was shedding light on the industry of the sex workers that were in New York, and so Susan was a part of this. According to Jill, Susan often stopped taking medications to treat her bipolar disorder by this time, and she also stated that Susan occasionally took Xanax to achieve highs around this time. So she would get high. She abused prescription drugs. She also stopped taking certain drugs to help with her bipolar. So she was not doing good at all. She returned to dancing again at this time to kind of make some money for herself because, you know, she wasn't doing so good. And also she was an addict. I think it's easy to get drugs while you're at these kinds of joints. And, you know, she was trying to do you know, research for her stories here. And Jill stated that Susan seemed to be having many personal problems, but everyone assumed she would pull herself together, which is a really horrible mindset because when you see someone really actively struggling like that and you just think, oh, well, she'll pull herself out of it. I think that's a really unfortunate thing that happened because she needed the help. She needed protection, like actual protection She needed to be, you know, put in a facility to help her with her rehab. Um, She tried. She actively tried, you know, to help herself. But, you know, everyone around her, I think, was like, oh, Susan's got it. She'll be okay. She actually told Jill at this time that she had bronchitis, emphysema, and a stomach ulcer due to the stress that she had due to the fact that she had to rewrite her vampire story uh, for The Village Voice. So she was under a lot of duress. And, of course, she, again, was thinking, I'm being stalked. I'm being stalked by someone in the mob. But she also thought, she told a bunch of people, she thought she was being stalked by an ex-boyfriend that she was seeing. Again, that was kind of intermittently coming in and out of her life. So she just had a lot going on on her plate. And this is so unfortunate because there's so many factors to this story. There's so many avenues that we can't really pin down which one could be the the actual smoking gun is it the vampire situation is it the stripping situation with the mob is it her ex-boyfriend that's stalking her now did she just want to disappear what happened you know who which one can be to blame and it's so unfortunate that there's so many pieces to the story and no wonder why it's been unsolved to this day but i think the fact that it is unsolved to this day lends credence to the fact that i think I mean, I think her body probably would have been found by now at this point in time, right? You would imagine. So you you would probably think, this is just me speculating using conjecture, that if she were to, let's just say, be killed by the mob, they would do a great job of hiding her body to where she would never be found, right? So that makes sense. And I think the mob was also hand in hand with the police and a lot of her family and friends when she went missing, claimed that the police didn't do a good enough job at trying to figure out what happened to her. Um, And also, again, she came forward to people saying that she was being stalked by her ex-boyfriend, and the police weren't helping her either with that. Um, So was she getting too close to a lot of different undercover, seedy businesses that were happening in New York City? I think so. I think that's very obvious, and I think that is probably the best evidence that we have to say that she probably did have a hit out on her, but that's just all conjecture on my point. Let's get into the day that she disappeared and the circumstances surrounding her disappearance. 
So the day, it was a Tuesday, July 16th, 1996, Susan hurriedly dropped off her son, David, at Mark's place because, again, like I said, they lived in an apartment complex and he lived below her. So she was dropping their son, David, off at Mark's and Susan and Mark, they were estranged. They didn't have like the greatest of relationships, but they co-parented for David. Um, and this complex was on Washington Street in Nutley, New Jersey. So she lived in New Jersey and she, you know, traveled to New York for her work, which is very common. Susan told Mark that she would return in half an hour. And she left all of her personal belongings at her house, including her pager, her wallet, all her personal belongings she left in her house. She didn't say where she was going. Some accounts stated that she went to use a payphone across the street, which was less than a block from her apartment. And that was put out there by Mark himself. Mark Walsh said to the police, oh, well, she told me that she was going to go call somebody and she went to use a payphone. But weirdly enough, when the police looked into this, there was no record of her using any of the nearby payphones. So that seemingly is a bit suspicious right off the gate. But so she drops David off at Mark's house. She says, I'm gonna, I'll be right back. And then she never comes back. Very odd. Very, very, very odd. And of course, her friends and family would say Susan would never voluntarily leave David. You know, and it's been since 1996 that she's been gone. She would never leave her son. People say that the two most important things in her life was her journalism career and her son, David, and that she would never leave her son, David. David was only 11. She would never leave him. She loved that boy so much. And so what happened to her? Well, of course, it's unclear, you know. It's just so unfortunate that we have at least three possible avenues, the vampire situation, the mob situation, and her ex-boyfriend. Detectives have spoken to several people who have claimed to have seen Susan around the time of her disappearance after which including one of her friends, Melissa Hines. So Melissa claims that a month after Susan disappeared in August, she saw Susan or a woman that looked like Susan next to a black car, a black limousine. When she yelled Susan out to this woman, she and the men that she was with, this woman, got in the car and drove off. I would probably believe that, you know, a friend of Susan's would probably would recognize Susan, right? But it had been a month, who knows, you know. The license plate number was tracked down because she had the right state of mind. She remembered the license plate number to this car. So the police used this. They tracked this person down and the driver said, oh yeah, that woman I could believe could be Susan because the police provided a photograph of Susan to the driver. And he says, I, I could maybe believe that that could be Susan that I saw. Yes, I believe so. He couldn't be certain though if it was her. He said, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that could be. Susan, but I can't definitively say if it was or not. I don't know. Melissa believes that if she is alive, she may be deliberately hiding out because she was in danger. That makes sense. But yet again, I have to say, though, you know, she would never voluntarily leave her son. And it's been all of this time, what, almost 30 years, I believe, if I'm doing the math correct, that she's been gone. I mean, if she was worried about the mob having a hit on her, I would, I would imagine at some point in time, she would eventually reach out to her son to be like, I'm okay, you know, or something. I, I don't know. I mean, how long is the contract valid out on somebody? You know, if the mob enacts a, a contract out on someone's life, is it forever or does it eventually expire? I, I, I'm, I don't know. But I mean, 
who knows really with that. So that's what her friends kind of think, you know, that if she did disappear, that it was because she was in fear of her life and so she vanished. But again, a lot of her friends and family think that something happened to her, that she was met with foul play. Before Susan vanished, Melissa actually could confirm that while she was with Susan, she noticed like, oh yeah, there are cars following us, strangely. Like she could see that Susan was being followed and stalked and hounded by strange vehicles and cars and people that they didn't recognize. And while the police were looking in Susan's apartment, they saw that the month of July on her calendar was ripped off the wall. So she had the month of July taken. I don't know if she had it on her person, why she threw it away. Clearly, I think, you know, you have to think this was the 90s and calendars were a lot more commonplace and much more popular than they are now. So you had all of your, all of your stuff out there on your calendar, you know, all of it. You were not lax with your calendar. You were very up to date with your calendar and you use that as your lifeline. And the fact that she had it ripped off of her wall, clearly one could maybe presume that she had something written on a certain date in July that she didn't want people to find out about. So yet again, really, really weird very odd. Some believe that this was purposefully removed to cover up an appointment, but of course no one knows. It's all conjecture. So now we're going to get into the story of her ex-boyfriend, the one that was stalking her. So she had a guy that lived with her, a friend that lived with her in the apartment. His name was Christian Peppo, and Christian spoke with the New York Post in 2006 while they were doing like a sort of 10-year anniversary update of Susan's disappearance. It had been 10 years at that point. So they were interviewing people in her life at this time. And he also dated Susan for a little bit. Um, So he knew Susan, but he said that she confided in him that her ex-boyfriend, Billy Walker, was stalking her. And additionally, the article stated that her husband, Mark, Mark Walsh, refused to allow police to perform forensic testing of their house when Susan disappeared. That's really odd. I had seen some conflicting reports state that the police ruled out Mark as a suspect. I've also seen some reports say that Mark is still a suspect. So I don't know definitively which one it is, which is why I'm not stating. I'm just saying there's a lot of conjecture out there, you know. So I guess we can't rule out Mark as a suspect, you know, because it's not definitively one way or the other. But getting back to her ex-boyfriend, Billy Walker, Billy was a coke addict who ran with the biker gang and he once wrote a confession to chopping up bodies for the mob. And apparently he called Susan repeatedly in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, according to Christian Peppo. And although she feared him, allegedly Susan had gone back to doing drugs and having sex with Billy, according to Christian. Very, very odd. I mean, yes, we all know that Susan got back into doing drugs, but the fact that she got back with her stalker crazy ex-boyfriend who apparently has a connection to the mob, very weird, really odd here. According to Christian, Susan hatched a plan to get rid of Billy for good because he was bothering her. She, of course, knew mobsters at the strip club where she danced, right? She knew all of these people really shady people. And her scheme, according to Christian, was to expose Billy as a rat and blackmail the gangsters into killing him. Why she would all of a sudden get involved in that? 
and get herself deeper involved in the mob? I really don't know. That's really odd to me, but according to Christian, she was adamant that she wanted to do this and he tried to tell her to not do it. He said, well, they might kill Billy, but they might kill you too. And according to him, he said that she didn't listen to him. Really odd. And the fact that this was only a thing that one person said, who knows how accurate that is. I'm just giving all the facts of the case as it's presented. And this is according to what he said. So I don't know. I think that's really weird. She's having the mob on her tail for her own reasons, but now she wants to get involved even further and try to have this guy killed. Ah, uh, that's, that's a bit weird. I guess it's not out of the realm of possibility. I'm just saying it is a bit weird. But that's kind of really where it stands here with this story. A really sad article that I read as well. Susan had a half-brother, Arthur, and he had an interview. And so he had a phone call with Susan and the last phone call he had with her, he said was very weird. He said that she was out of it and that she seemed distracted. He remembered that the conversation was almost like two different ones where she mentioned a trip to Las Vegas that she was going to take and how she was helping a government agency like the FBI, the CIA, or the Justice Department with a case. And she later told Arthur she wanted to watch Roseanne and that she would call him back. So half an hour later, she called again. But he said that she was disjointed at first and abruptly ended the call, telling Arthur that she'd call him later. What is this whole thing that she thought she was helping the FBI, CIA, or Justice Department with? I'm not sure. Really, this is, this is odd. And the fact that there's more involvement and there's more evidence surrounding the mob, I think that's where my brain goes to personally. The vampire situation, while apparently... I think that could totally be true. I don't necessarily think that the vampires took her. I just don't believe that. I just don't necessarily think that that's where it goes. In my opinion, in my humble opinion, I kind of think that more credence leads to the mob. If she's talking to her friends about being involved with the mob, the FBI, the CIA, and the mobs after her due to her story and being in the strip joints and, you know, Billy Walker, if he has connections to the mob, then I personally believe with everything that we have collected in this case and that we've looked at together, in my humble opinion, that's kind of where my brain goes. Now, again, I feel like if she was killed by anyone else that isn't necessarily good at doing their job of professionally hiding a body, I really do believe that she would have been found at this point. And I think if she had been voluntarily missing, I think she could have also maybe been spotted at this point in time. But, you know, because I don't think she'd voluntarily leave her son. But, you know, the day that she disappeared, where was she going? She dropped off David at Mark's place. I have to go. I'll be back. She left all her belongings. So seemingly enough, she thought she was coming back. If she thought she was going to forever leave and disappear. She would have she would have probably brought some of her things with her. Not everything, but she would have probably brought some stuff with her. It harkens back to the episode I did on the Manic Preachers singer, uh, Richie, and how people speculate that either he killed himself or he voluntarily disappeared and, you know, all of his belongings were gone. He didn't take his belongings with him, you know? So it's just like, if he voluntarily disappeared... I kind of just believe that, you know, if, if you took your belongings with you, you're planning on having a, a, a life, right? 
But the fact that she left her stuff there, yeah, the calendar being ripped off the wall, that's also weird too. It's it's a lot of really weird things. And I think maybe she had some kind of appointment, you know? If she ripped off the, the July calendar page, she obviously maybe had an appointment that day. She was maybe meeting with somebody, you know, um, who knows? And maybe if it was with involvement with the mob or something, she didn't want people to find out. I would probably say that, right? Who knows? Who knows? It's all conjecture. It's all speculation. And unfortunately, that's all we kind of have to go on because there's no definitive proof either way to say it was the vampires, it was the mob, or she voluntarily disappeared or she was murdered by Billy Walker. That could be another one too, since she was apparently back with him at this point. So, you know, it's really, really hard. And we also have to remember that she was not mentally well at this time. You know, she was off of her bipolar medication. She was getting increasingly paranoid, you know, so I just don't think she was necessarily operating from a well place in her mind. I'm just going to say it as nicely as I can. So who really knows? Who really knows? You know, I could also, sure, maybe believe if she thought truly, if she really did think the mob was after her, but maybe they weren't in reality, but she thought that they were, yeah, sure, maybe she could disappear. I I could believe that too. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. My brain, I think, just naturally goes to the mob because I think that is probably the most, there's a lot more evidence. There's a lot more in this story involving the mob with her disappearance that I think leads at least some credence to that direction, but we don't know. And this is why her case still remains open and unsolved to this very day. Um, So really crazy story involving Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh didn't necessarily have anything to do with this, but again, I was just researching him and this came up and I was like, that's crazy. I have to dive deep into this. Um, I was looking on her missing persons poster with all of her factual information on it. um, And I just thought I would share a bit more information, you know, about her. Distinguishing characteristics of Susan. She's a Caucasian female. She has bleached blonde hair and blue eyes. Susan's maiden name is Young, of course. Her childhood nickname was Susie. She goes by Susie. She has a scar on her right wrist and her ears are pierced. She smokes cigarettes and she has pronounced she has a pronounced New Jersey accent. This is just if she's still alive, you know. And this the distinguishable characteristics of her if you were to come across her. The clothing and jewelry description um, of the day that she disappeared, she was wearing a black tank dress and black sandals, and she had a gold ring with a black stone on it that she wore. Um, so her medical conditions um, are also listed here on her missing persons poster. Susan was a recovering alcoholic with 11 years of sobriety in 1996. According to family and friends, she began drinking shortly before her disappearance. She stopped using prescription drugs, namely Xanax. She began using prescription drugs, namely Xanax. She was hospitalized for ulcers and told friends she had emphysema. Susan's friends also stated she had bipolar disorder and may have been depressed at the time that she vanished. Susan may have attempted suicide prior to the time that she was last seen. Um, And that's kind of all that I can really bring to the table with this one. I really wanted to try to dig deep as I possibly could. And I looked at practically every single article that was written about this case. And this is everything that I have to give you guys. I'm curious to know what you guys have to think about this story. I know that we can't really leave this on an official, this is definitively what this is because it's an open case, you know, it's unsolved. It really could go one of any of those directions, but I really believe the vampires isn't as strong. I believe that, I mean, 
It's either she could have disappeared of her own volition because she really thought she was being hounded by the mob. The mob truly did want to get a hit out on her due to what she knew and her involvement. Or her stalker ex-boyfriend, Billy, could have done something to her. And with his mob connections, there's something with the mob in here that I just feel like in- intuitively there's something about that that I think there's a bit of credence to that. I think the vampires, that's a bit, you know, Hollywood for me. But I'm shocked that it's even a little, an actual thing, though. Truly, based upon what I've researched, it is, there, there are people out there that do do that stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of weirdos out there, but I just don't think it was vampires, in my personal opinion. I just really don't. I know she dated a guy that claimed to be a vampire, but I just think that's a bit of a weird, kinky thing. I don't think that's what caused her death, so... That is the story of Susan Walsh, the one sister-in-law to musician Joe Walsh. And that's just one aspect. I mean, you know, of course she was his sister-in-law and you don't forget family like that. So it's it's going to be marked on the Walsh family for the rest of their their lives. And I think it's a really interesting story I wanted to bring forth. Um, so thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. I will leave links to everything down below in the description of this episode if you want to support the podcast monetarily or if you want to follow me on Instagram for the podcast. Thank you guys so much. And I will see you guys next Wednesday for another episode of On The Myth. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.